and I've come over these years while in so many ways I, I find myself still holding to the core of what I was raised in as a young boy to man, uh, I have also found, and as I've sought to learn from other parts of the body of Christ, as they bring their heart and the revelation that, that they believe God has given them to the table and while we might butt heads about it and say, well, you know, I'm right, I believe the Lord is leading us this way and others will say, well, no, I believe the Lord is leading us this way in this other direction. The reality is all it does for me is tell me how big God is. Uh, I mean, we're 2,000 years into the life of the Christian church. The body of Christ has has been growing through all kinds of turmoil, persecution, challenge, transition for 2,000 years and today there are still issues that have not been settled to the definitive. Now, I, I cannot accept that Jesus' crucifixion on the cross was not atoning. In other words, I cannot accept, as I was taught in, in one um, theological college, that perhaps the, the, the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross was just a, a witness to the powerful love of God. There was not an atoning, in other words, Christ dying for my sins, him paying the death price that was due me because of my rebelliousness and my rebellion against God and the sin as a consequence that I committed down through the years. I cannot accept that that was a symbolic act. Okay, so I can't go with those within the body of Christ that sit with that. I, I cannot go with the, those within the body of Christ that question whether Jesus rose again or not. I, I sit with the very real physical resurrection of Christ and the physical, he was in resurrection form. He was not as he was. He was in flesh but somehow able to appear through walls and at a will. And, and we caught a glimpse of what life in the eternal was going to be like for us. We too, whether we die before Christ comes again or are alive when the trumpet sounds and the dead in Christ shall rise first and then we that are alive will join them in the air, we will be what Jesus was back then when he rose again will be in this resurrection form in an instant and he will gather all those atoms together and those things that made us up that are dead in the deep, you know, died in the wars and, and only God can do it. He caused it to come into being. He created it so he can reconstruct. He can call it into being. It's not he's just going to give us a new body. He talks about a physical resurrection. So that's where I kind of sit. However, when it comes to operation within the life of the church, how we worship, um, the different aspects of life for the body of Christ, I have learnt a great deal, I guess, over my journey as I've questioned others and their practices and their beliefs and sought to work through on the basis of God's word and the experience of the body of Christ where I sit. Because one reality is certain one solid, um, permanent attribute that we all carry in our Christian life is that we never arrive at full understanding and we're never done. God does not stamp a use-by date on our foreheads and say, once you reach a certain age, I'm done with you, I'm not going to 
share with you anymore, reveal to you anymore. He has much to do with us. And it can be quite surprising how many of us can, can testify to the fact that in the very latest years of our lives, sometimes those latest years have been the most powerful years for us in our journey in Christ. For others, it's like they get a whole, they get it all at the moment of their conversion. I love the fact that God treats each one of us as an individual and he has a journey for all of us to be on. And where we are in those journeys require grace from us with each other, don't they? You know? And this was one of the things with speaking in tongues. As a young man, I felt kind of inferior to those supernatural, those superhuman Christians who spoke in tongues. It's a supernatural thing. It was weird. We had a real revival in our high school and, and, and we used to gather, the Christians would gather together for prayer at lunchtimes and even once the principal had to come and say, hey, guys and gals, you probably need to go to class. You know, we'd prayed through the bell and, and the kids in the school were just aware of these mad Christians who were just on fire for the Lord. Now, there were a couple of us that were speaking in tongues and, and it kind of threw a bit of disruption into the mix, you know, because of kind of what, what's all this going on and I'm not sure whether any of us here have uh, experienced being in situations where people speak in tongues, sometimes it's known as a prayer language, um, uh, but it, it is a supernatural endowment from God as with other gifts of the Holy Spirit. And part of this, for this point, if we, you, you know, we may be some... We may be of the view, for example, that the, the sign gifts, the, the supernatural evidences of God type gifts, speaking in tongues, healing, word of knowledge, prophecy, um, there are a few kind of dramatic gifts known sometimes as the sign gifts. Feel, many feel that when the period of the canon was closed or when the, the apostolic era ended uh, at at the end of the first generation Christian church, the need for these things fell away. Doesn't, doesn't need to affect how we understand 1 Corinthians 14 because Paul is speaking to a church of his day and these things were evident within the worship of the church of its day. It's taken me my whole life to come to a point where I've moved from a position where in many ways some of uh, within the church we would pray against what we saw as a demonic influence, people who spoke in tongues or that it was the devil impersonating something. What's he impersonating if, it's, if there's not the genuine article somewhere in the life of the church? There are all kinds of things that I've grappled with. However, I, I've come to understand that God is bigger than my attempts to box him in. Um, and usually, I guess, what I've observed is concerns over extremes. That's, I, I, and I guess that's perhaps where many of us would sit. It's the extremes that we see or experience that cause us concern. So, does it mean that the whole thing is in question? And, and here in this Corinthian church, there is an issue of extremes. It seemed that the Corinthian church, 
like many of us in our journey through faith, were so enamoured by this supernatural gift called speaking in tongues, a theological term for it is glossolalia, and, and there's a Greek foundation for that with words and that. I've got a, a churchman's dictionary at home which kind of pokes fun at some of our church terms. And it, it says, glossolalia, um, speaking in unrepeatable words such as glossolalia. <laughs> so, you, you know, if, if, please don't be offended uh, if, if that's precious to you in that sense. However, what the Corinthian church was doing was losing the balance that comes when you focus on the giver rather than the gift. Fundamentally, you know, getting down to the grass, the, the foundations of it, these guys and gals were just really excited about this supernatural uh, manifestation. Let's read verse, four, verse 1 of chapter 14. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire spiritual gifts especially the gift of prophecy. Now, uh, we, we need to kind of refer back to the context. Chapter 12 is a dissertation on the spiritual gifts and it says there in verse 11, all these are the work of one and the same spirit and he gives them to each one just as he determines. The, the chapter 12 tags out with in verse 30, do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? But eagerly desire the greater gifts. Then Paul goes into a, an ex, a dissertation on love, what he means by love in chapter 13, which Andy so ably unpacked for us last week. And it finishes with verse 13, and now these three remain, faith, hope and love. But the greatest of these is love. Verse 1 of 14 then Follow the way of love and eagerly desire spiritual gifts, especially the gift of prophecy. So you can see how it's linking from chapter 12 where he says that gifts are given to all as he determines. The end of it, um, uh, eagerly desire the greater gifts, do so in love and especially the gift of prophecy. So he's really kind of following, following on the amplified version of this, of this one verse says this and I love the way that the Amplified unpacks meanings quite, quite effectively generally. Eagerly pursue and seek to acquire this love that he's just been talking about in chapter 13. Make it your aim, your great quest. You put a full stop there. Eagerly, let's think about this for a minute. It's only verse 1, don't worry too much. You know, I've got the clock there. Verse 1, I saw that. Somebody looking at their watch, yeah, just confirming. It's quarter past 11, so we're already under the pump. Um, these, this, is, this chapter, along with very few others, is probably one of the biggest issue chapters, contentious chapters in the whole of Christendom. <laughs> and we still only have half an hour. However, we will do our best and we'll perhaps at least put a shot out there and because there is much, much more to be said on the issues raised by this chapter than this one morning will do. So we'll leave this in the hands of the Lord to inspire and bring forth what he would like to bring this morning for us. So after talking about love, and, and the reason I just want to sit there before we rush on to the other stuff 
is to think about this really. Love is patient, love is kind in chapter 13. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered. We live in a world of easy anger. We live in a world of self-centeredness like no other. You, you know, uh, what's that word for self-orientation? Narcissism. Narcissism. Yeah, that now is almost like a virtue. Um, it is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Imagine that. When you actually forgive, you actually do forget. Boy, I, I'm, I tell you, I'm good at keeping a record of wrongs. Um, love does not delight in evil but rejoices when the tr- with the truth. In the Living Bible it finishes by saying if you believe in someone you always uh, expect the best of them, you always stand by them and you'll stand your ground in defending them. And how much healthier our churches would be after 2,000 years if we could actually just do that. If we could get off first base and love as intended. is so powerful. And so you could draw a full stop, eagerly pursue and seek to acquire this love. It starts off with chapter 14. Make it your aim, your great quest. Full stop, says the Amplified. Actually, it's a semicolon. It goes on. But let's just sit there. Make love, godly love, as he described it, as he intends it, as he reflects it and, and, and buries us in it. Our great quest. However, on we go into chapter 14 and the Amplified says, and earnestly desire and cultivate the spiritual endowments, in brackets, gifts, especially that you may prophesy in brackets, interpret the divine will and purpose in inspired preaching and teaching. Let me just run that past you again as the Amplified has it. Prophecy means not telling the future, although that was quite a big part of the Old Testament prophet. But in the New Testament, prophecy took on a different kind of understanding. It wasn't so much about talking about the future, but speaking prophetically. Um, there's a, a senior lady in this congregation whom we had a conversation with at coffee at the end of one meeting and, and she spoke prophetically without even realising it in a sense. It was, it was going, whoa, boy, listen to this voice of testimony, listen to this voice of wisdom, listen to this word that was coming out of this, this dear lady, dear sister's mouth off the cuff. I, I, I received it as a prophetic word in that moment. Quite. Oh, wow. I found, wow, the giftedness in this church. These people who have journeyed with the Lord, particularly for many, many years, it just oozes out in the most beautiful way possible. Earnestly desire and cultivate the spiritual endowments, the gifts, especially that you may prophesy. In other words, that you may interpret the divine will and purpose in inspired preaching and teaching. Giftedness is an expression of godly love. 
You, you, you cannot be sincerely reflecting godly love without desire, desiring to operate in the spiritual giftedness that God has put on you because you realise that to take up the responsibility of that gift will require commitment from you because your purpose and your place in the body of Christ, if you go through chapter 12 where it's one body but many parts, we are all depending on each other, not because of our talents and our abilities and our skills like administration or being able to play music, that's not a spiritual gift. These are talents and skills and, 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 and abilities that are given. Spiritual gifts, they are given by the Holy Spirit, they are, they are supernatural endowments. And, and when the gift operates through a talent, Keith Green was a, a composer of gospel music, Christian music in the 70s. He went to be with the Lord because of a, a light plane crash that took out one of his sons as well. Um, he's written some incredibly powerfully, what I would say powerfully anointed music over the years. The first record album that I ever wept over was a Keith Green album for him who has ears to hear. What was going on there? Why this kind of extra kind of power attached to a good song? The talent is the ability to write beautiful songs. The anointing was to do with being a prophet and an evangelist. That's what Keith Green was. That's how powerfully he ministered to the campuses in the States, talking to students about the things of God and sharing the gospel with him and wham, boy was he powerful. Now you put that kind of anointing into his music and his music speaks with that same kind of authority. As, as a teacher, you know, remember when Jesus finished the Sermon on the Mount and they said he preached like as one who had authority or taught as one had authority and not as the scribes. There was a stamp of authority that was the anointing that God, the Holy Spirit, placed on God, his son in flesh in that moment and in his ministry life. He had an anointing for teaching and revealing the kingdom and speaking prophetically into his world in such a way that after three years he changed the world forever and was called the man of the millennium in the year 2000. Reflecting, so giftedness is an expression of the love of God a responsibility to take very, very seriously and, and release and so part of our life within the church because one of the things that was expressed to me and Bev when we were talking with the eldership of this church back in the day about coming on board was that, that Monty wanted to become more powerfully a gift-based church. So that is a wonderful journey which inspires Bev and I to feel that we want to be in that journey too. You know, it's not about me, it's not about Bev, it's about what the Lord wants to do in this place and I've got to say, I want to be in that journey. What might the Lord be seeing Monty to be in, say, five or ten years' time? Where, where it started is not where it still is. What might it be? What might it look like if we were to come to him without any preconceptions or boundaries and say, well, Lord, we only want you to operate within this. Now, from my understanding, Monty has had a Montmorency Community Church or Montmorency Gospel Chapel has had a great reputation for teaching the Word. The Word has been declared strongly, powerfully, clearly and accurately, probably by and large, over the 80-odd years that Monty has existed. You know, 
Is that where it ends? For Montmorency Community Church. As we've transitioned into a church that's oriented intentionally towards reaching out to the community, being contemporary of, of orientation in its style and that kind of thing, I don't think anybody here is saying so we want to kind of step back from our solid theology base and, and kind of warm ourselves up a bit so that we will be more appealing to our community. Don't think I'm getting that kind of message. I, I'm loving the way that we focus so clearly on the gospel and on who Jesus is, his person, his character, his mission, on, on the reason we, we celebrate communion, that we invest serious time in celebrating communion every week. You, you, you know, so, so the Lord has prepared this wonderful foundation on the word. Now what might he want to do with us? I, I'm, I'm, I'm not getting any, you know, at the moment I'm seeking the Lord about that journey. I, I don't come with actually an agenda. I don't want us to see us be um, a rock and roll church or that we've got to be Pentecostal and all hanging from the rafters. But I, <laughs> not that Pentecostals normally hang from the rafters. I just think it's they're reaching for the ceiling fan sometimes or, or the heat. But, you know, I mean, and I shouldn't say that because that sounds disparaging. I think what I have learned from the charismatic side of the body of church, Christ is about worship a bit more, loving being in the presence of God a bit more. I close my eyes now when people read the word because I don't want anything to distract me from... Sometimes I'll often close my eyes when people are singing. One, one pastor said once when, when he encountered the Holy Spirit in a much more powerful way than he had, he started to sing with his eyes closed and pray with his eyes open. <laughs> Go figure, you, you know. Just when I think I've got everything in order, the Lord wants to come and rattle my cage and show me he's, he's bigger than me and my understanding of him. And so my prayer is, Lord, don't lead me up a garden path don't lead me into deception. Protect me and shield my mind and transform me by your, the washing of your word. You know, Take on board those scriptures and lead me and help me to see where you are leading me. I'm, I'm reminded of when Peter had that vision where the Lord let down the blanket from heaven and revealed all this unclean food that he would not necessarily participate. And the Lord said, it's okay. I'm lifting that legal attachment to your life off you. What might the Lord want to lift off you and I in our individual journey and in our corporate journey? What might the Lord want us to lay down? What might the Lord want us to embrace or at least carefully explore, trusting that he has ensured that he has brought Monty forward to this point in time as he has brought the whole body of Christ forward to this point in time. Let's read on verse 2. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God. Indeed, no one understands him. He utters mysteries with his spirit but everyone who prophesies speaks to men for their strengthening, encouragement and comfort. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. That's, people call it a prayer language sometimes. Um, 
and they, they, his spe- spirit is speaking to the spirit of God in a sense. Uh, yes, we know that there are heavenly languages. Yes, we know that there would be tongues. I'm not sure that when we get to heaven we'll be speaking in English. You know, what will we be speaking? I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, says Paul, but I would rather have you prophesy. He who prophesies is greater, being pretty direct here, isn't he? He who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless he interprets so that the church may be edified. I don't want us to feel inferior as Christians anymore because we might not have tongues in the midst of our worship. I'm, I'm over that. And I don't believe that speaking in tongues is a gift is an essential sign of being baptised in the Spirit. We are baptised, rebirthed in the Holy Spirit at conversion. And there may be times when God comes, at least in my view, okay, there may be times when God comes to us very, very powerfully with, if you like, a fresh infilling and, 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 and quite powerful anointing in many, many ways as we journey closer to him and as we allow him to have more of us. However, not all of us will speak in tongues. But all of us will have some birthday presents given to us when we got saved and when we were born into God's eternal family. He gives us some birthday presents. It might be the gift of teaching. It might be the gift of helps. It might be the gift of mercy. It might even be the gift of celibacy. It, it might be the gift of preaching. It might be the gift of giving extraordinarily. but he will give us something. Do we know what our spiritual, supernatural gifting is? What yours or mine might be? Seek to excel in the gifts that build up the church. Bible Study Fellowship quotes prophecy as this. It's the ability from the Spirit to declare the good news of Jesus Christ in an understandable language. And Paul exhorted this church to put that kind of preaching and teaching way above tongues. Let let us keep on moving. So basically that's that's where he sits with those first verses. He's saying um, when it comes down to it, when we get together in in the body in public worship, it is essential that the word is clearly declared so that it can be understood, so that people can respond to it. Now he does go on to say in uh, verse 22 and on, and I'm jumping a bit now, um, that, that in a sense this supernatural gift of speaking in an unknown language um, is a sign not to the Christians but to the non-Christian because they will see the supernatural manifestation and say, oh, there must be a God. What's going on here? Even though earlier he said it doesn't make, you know, if, you, if somebody gets up and just babbles in, in, their, in, their, in their tongue, uh, they know what good is that? He does go on though, however, almost to contradict himself and say, however, it is, this is a sign to the non-believer that God is real and is manifesting himself in the presence but we must have prophetic declaration of the good news of Jesus Christ and of his word in order for the unbeliever to then move on that and respond in, in saving faith. Now let's go 
uh, it finishes by saying, verse 25, so he will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. Now, orderly worship from verse 26. What then shall we say, brothers, when you come together? Now, listen to this. This is a window into how worship was in their homes, uh, generally, in this early first generation church. This is what they did. When you come together, and I used to feel that my upbringing in a brethren church was very authentically New Testament. There wasn't any professional clergy. It was all the priesthood of all believers and we all shared around the table uh, of, of the communion together and everybody brought a word or a prayer or whatever um, in, in the body, um, provided you were male. Um, however, it, this, is, this is this kind of picture, but it also is a bit of a different picture and this picture is a little bit mimicked in the church today in certain corners of the body of Christ. So when you come together, verse 26, or uh, everyone has a hymn or a, verse, a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue or an interpretation, all of these must be done for the strengthening of the church. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two or at the most three, should speak one at a time and someone must interpret. None of, none of this babble and all competing with each other. If there is no interpretation, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and God. In other words, treat it as a prayer language under your breath. Uh, there was a dear old lady. She had the purple rinse in her hair in our church in Perth. Um, she had a prayer language, a gift in tongues and she also was prophetic. It was interesting what she would say sometimes, what she saw on me when I was preaching and she saw in the spirit and let, let's not get carried away with some of these things but just understand this. Um, it was interesting. I, I was not really aware that she had you know, a, a gift of tongues necessarily but she came to us one morning and said, look, I feel the Lord has given me a word for the church and I feel that I can bring it this morning because it happened that somebody who was a lieutenant colonel in the Salvation Army as it was in that time happened to have the gift of interpretation which I actually didn't know that he did. It, you know, it's not something that is common practice within the Salvation Army. But because there was an interpretation available we gave permission under the authority of the eldership for her to bring her word and for our brother to interpreted. So that's the only time that I've directly experienced that. I've certainly been in places where that has occurred. However, the interesting thing about her tongue was that it was apparently pure Hebrew. She'd never learnt it but the tongue that she had, this, this prayer language, was pure Hebrew. Now there have been times where missionaries from uh, the deepest, darkest corners of China have, for example, have been in a, in a meeting in, in the United States and somebody has been babbling in tongues and that missionary from China said that person was, was declaring um, uh, it was demonic, it was, what's the word I'm looking, blasphemies in that Chinese dialect that this missionary happened to know in the States back in China. You, you, you know, sometimes the language is a language that might be earthly and sometimes it's, it's, it's a heavenly language. I, I twenty-nine, two or three, verse 29. Two or three prophets should speak and the others should weigh carefully what the others have said. Let's go down um, to verse 33b. 
As in all the congregations of the saints, women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak but must be in submission as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. It's pretty tough verses, isn't it? Certainly not politically correct, but that's not our problem, is it? What we have to figure out is what is the Lord saying because he is the same yesterday, today and forever and he's not affected by fad. There are a couple of ways, there are actually many ways that this could be understand, understood and there are some churches um, it, ar- around the world today who um, operate on that basis of absolute silence from the women in public worship. For me it seems to go against the very heart and character of God. just doesn't seem to fit. I can't believe on one hand that he will bestow gifts equally as he sees fit and then cause women to place on agenda um, complete silence. I'm not quite sure I, I get that. It seems quite apparent that women did speak in the worship as we learned from chapter 11, both praying and prophesying. So why this directive to remain silent? For me, if we step back from the particular uh, uh, bit, it's more to do once again with taking liberties with their liberty. In maintaining cultural respect and mutual submission, so there's a cultural thing but there's also a divine thing and that is you must be mutually submitted to each other and then in Ephesians it goes on to say wives be subject to your husband because he is the head of, and goes on to unpack that. It comes out of being mutually submitted to each other that is not necessarily unless the starting point in this relationship is equal. When you, when you say to, to each other, you must be mutually submitted to each other and then goes on to pronounce uh, some other things about headship and how line of command works, you, it, it only is necessary to even talk about it when we are together equal. It seems that the women folk could have been interjecting in a way that was disrupting worship. Another way which, which does resonate with me a little bit is that uh, the, the body of Christ, the prophecies, they were wanting to interpret the prophetic word and in that sense operate as elders and testing the words and contradicting the word that is given to the elders who are in subjection to the Lord and responsible uh, as the male head, heads of the church for the word as it is taught within the, com- the communion. So why is this so disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church? It seems to come out of disorder and rebelliousness on one hand or another way where they are seeking to take over headship in, in their expression of their new liberty to take headship of men by intending to interpret or teach counter to that of the eldership. There's so much more to be said and these are not the only passages that talk about this. 
What I take from this is that male and female have been gifted by God for the building up of the kingdom and to participate in senior worship but within a context of coming under authority because we are, as Paul the Apostle said, we are all as under authority. Let's pray for the sake of time. We'll draw a line in the sand on this. And, and Lord, uh, what might you be saying to us today? And you, you know that we want so much to be in the centre of your will and everything that we do and everything that we be. We ask that you would lead us along the path that you would have us go. Bring, bring clarity and peace to these things in our hearts so that we can at least present a, a, an apologetic, a position of, of this church that can be shown to people and people can understand how we see uh, the genius of your instructions on headship and mutual submission, how we see the genius of that actually operate such that both of us, male and female, old and young, thrive in our life in Christ. Hear our prayer we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.